Uh, we've been in a series called The Art of Neighboring, and this is the third and final week of this series. And Justin kicked off this series two weeks ago talking about the Good Samaritan and, and the expert in Jewish law who asked the question of Jesus, who is my neighbor? And he was explaining that a lot of times this gets taught is like everyone we encounter on the road is our neighbor. And while that's true, this can um, turn into one of those things like when you put an exclamation point at the end of every sentence in your text, you know, like if everything is important, nothing is important. And so it can turn into one of those things where if everyone's my neighbor and I have to love, I have to theoretically love all my theoretical neighbors, it can turn into something where we're not practically and faithfully loving our real, actual neighbors. And so in this series, we've been asking you to focus on your neighbors, the people who live around you. And Justin shared how he didn't want to get to know our neighbors in our old neighborhood because he wanted to be sort of off the clock when not doing normal ministry work. And God convicted them that he was living in a, a Christian bubble of sameness and, and not following Jesus' command to, to love our neighbor. And because of that, he wasn't being challenged in a lot of ways. And when he began neighboring, he found that he grew to love and care for the people he had been avoiding. So as a church family, right now our vision is building a loving, spirit-centered community. And while we are working to create that right here with us, our goal isn't to just stop with us. We want to go out from here and with other like-minded people foster little communities right where we live, where people are invited into the love of God through the Spirit in us. And so to that end, the first week of, of The Art of Neighboring, Justin introduced our <clears throat> neighboring cards they look like this. If you didn't get one of these cards yet, would you raise your hand? I want to make sure you get one. All right. Sheila, would you mind grabbing one for Gita and Dave and Joe in the back? Yeah, thank you. And for Camry and John. Just uh, when Sheila comes back, just raise your hands up again for her. And this card is um, this, this spot in the middle. You can see it on the screen, too. Represents your house. And this grid around it represents your eight closest neighbors. And the idea of it is uh, to think of the people who live in closest proximity to you and, and to write down the names of each of them that you know. And when we all did this the first week, a lot of us discovered that we only knew a couple names. And that's really normal. It's really normal to not know the names of your neighbor. But the challenge was how much of this card can we fill up? Can we challenge ourselves to introduce ourselves to our neighbors and meet them? So if you did already have a card, uh, show me a raise of hands if you've been able to meet a neighbor in the last couple of weeks. A new neighbor. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Show me um, if you have been making a little bit more intention to be in your yard and outside so you might be able to chat with a neighbor. Raise your hand. If, yes. Thank you. Good. And if you've had just a little more openness of heart towards neighboring during the last couple of weeks, can you raise your hand for me? Yeah. Thank you. Wonderful. Uh, if that's true, just keep going. I encourage you and I challenge you. And if, if you're really catching the vision for practicing neighboring, here's the big challenge. Host a block party with some of your neighbors this fall. September is a great time to do it. 
meet another neighbor who's like you and wants to neighbor well and plan a night of chilling in somebody's backyard. It's, it has the potential to dramatically increase the neighboring happening where you live. Last week, David uh, challenged us about two major obstacles to loving our neighbors well. And one of those challenges can actually be the little C church, just individual churches, where there um, can form a culture of tribalism. And this means where w- people start to have an attitude that, that, um, where they spend all their time with just this group of people, and they think just like this group of people, and look just like this group of people, and talk just like this group of people, and they stay away. They avoid everyone else, because this is our safe space. This is where it's safe. And so then there comes, you know, separation from other people and the desire to stay away from them. And at its most unhealthy, there can be an attitude of conquest, like we need to conquer these people, these bad people in this culture wars idea. And, And that doesn't promote loving our neighbor as ourselves at all. It keeps us away from our neighbors. And we want to be careful to not fall into that trap. And then also another major barrier to neighboring well is our personal expectations. In our country, we idolize being busy all the time. For many people, it's a measure of their self-worth, how busy they are or how productive they are, how much they're accomplishing, how much you're getting done. And it is so difficult to not be a slave to this one. Or, or to climbing the ladder, whether corporately or, or socially, it can become a major focus of our lives. And so David encouraged us to re-examine our priorities, to see if our schedule and priorities, the way we're spending our time, is aligned with seeking the kingdom first. And then trusting that Jesus was telling the truth. If we seek his kingdom first, then all the other things we need in this life will be provided for us. And today, I want to talk about another challenge or barrier we face in getting to know our neighbors, the people who live right around us. And that barrier is fear. And what I hope we'll walk away with today is that the great commandment is Jesus' invitation to live out of love and not fear. One story of this in my life was uh, in, in Justin and I's newlywed years, and I was probably like 20 or 21. We were living in Syracuse, and our house was right next to a little alley, and the alley just led down one street, and there was a neighbor right there that I had never met. And uh, I am forever running late. My old boss, Kent Butcher, is here. He can t- tell you that's the truth. <laughs> Some things never change. The office staff can also attest to that. Uh, so... I was, I loved taking this alley because in my mind, you know, I could warp time by taking this alley instead of going down the street and turning right. And so one day I was barreling down the alley and my neighbor, who I'd never met before, didn't know her name, really the first time I'd interacted with her at all. She's standing outside on her porch and she looks at me and she makes this motion and she says, slow down. And I instantly was like, ah. 
I was so ashamed and embarrassed. I didn't mean to be inconsiderate. I didn't realize that I was putting them in danger with my reckless driving. And I was incredibly ashamed. And so I drove away. And I did one of those things that we do when we're unexpectedly confronted. And I just replayed the incident over and over in my mind. And I was ashamed of myself. And I didn't like that feeling. And so I did the other thing that we do when we're ashamed, which is I just began to quickly turn it towards offense and anger. You know, that woman was judging me. She is a mean lady. I don't think she likes me. I think she's decided she doesn't like me. And maybe I don't like her either. And then after that, I avoided the alley. I avoided eye contact with her. And over the years, this one negative incident I had with her overlaid everything about her. In fact, that became who she was to me. Instead of uh, uh, getting to know her and knowing all kinds of new things about her, this was the only thing I ever wanted to know about her. She doesn't like me, and I don't like her. And all of it was based in fear, fear of her judgment, fear of her confronting me again. And I wonder if you've ever had a negative interaction with one of your neighbors. And so today, just like we did two weeks ago, we're going to revisit the story of the Good Samaritan from Luke 10 and consider it in the light of fear. And how did the characters in this story choose fear or choose to overcome their fear. And I hope we'll see right up front that the choice Jesus wants from us is to overcome our fear, to be afraid and do it anyway. Because the great commandment is Jesus' invitation to live out of love and not fear. So here's how the story starts. Jesus is teaching an expert in the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, stands up to test Jesus by asking him a question. And he says, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, well, you're a lawyer. Why don't you tell me what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? How do you interpret it? And the man answered, well, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting from two different places in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and he's bringing them together in one summation. And Jesus says, yep, you're right. That's good, real good, bud. Do this and you will live. But now he's a little bit embarrassed because he stood up and asked a question which he obviously knew the answer to. So then he got to the question he really wanted to ask. And who is my neighbor? So Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, answers a question by telling a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed over to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him, lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan, and the crowd goes, boo, came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. 
The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. So Jesus now answers a question with another question. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. So as Justin shared with us, the expert in the law of Moses was asking who is my neighbor to answer the question, who are all the people I don't have to neighbor? Who do I not have to love or care about? And so in answering the question, Jesus tells the story of this anonymous Jewish man. He gets mugged, banged up. And the next two characters he brings into the story are associated with the temple. And for the community of priests and temple assistants, the major focus of life was being ritually clean according to the law of Moses. And these laws said things like, if you get a little rash on your skin, you're unclean for this many days until it heals. Or if you touch someone who's came, come in contact with their own blood recently, you're unclean till the end of the day. These laws were there so that if you were entering the temple, you could be sure that you were clean according to the law. But if you weren't going to the temple, it was fine to be unclean. It wasn't sinful or wrong. It's part of life to get a little eczema or to get a cut and have to bandage it. You only had to be clean if you were going into the temple. That's when it mattered because if you were privileged to stand before in God's holy presence, you needed to be pure and clean according to the law. But even priests and temple assistants didn't go into the temple that often because there were lots of priests and assistants and they took turns on a schedule. And here's why I'm telling you these details. In Jesus' day, the families who ran the temple tried to be ritually clean almost 100% of the time, which was very difficult, and it wasn't necessary or required according to the law. The way to pull it off was to only spend time with other people who were also in the community of temple families because they were just as careful as you. And so it meant avoiding anyone outside the priestly community because they might make you unclean. Outsiders weren't safe to be around. And to them, this was viewed as righteous. Loving God meant staying as ritually pure as possible at all times. And so in their tribe of the priestly community, some of the people would have praised the temple priest and assistant for avoiding the injured man because he was bloody and it would have made them unclean and maybe other ways he would have made them unclean. And I, I want to be really careful to not disparage the Jewish priests and assistants. They wanted to be pure for the honor of God. And that wasn't bad or wrong. But Jesus was critical of their choices because they took it too far. They fell prey to tribalism and missed out on ministering to a lot of people outside of their circle. 
And, and Jesus wanted them to come out from that. And what drove their behavior was fear. They feared becoming unclean. They feared the inconvenience, the extra work, the extra time it would take if they came in contact with someone who made them impure. So they feared people outside the circle. And we need to consider the ways that we do this in our own lives. And Jesus told this story because he knew that this is kind of what the expert in the law of Moses was getting at too. He didn't want to care about people outside his circle, his safe zone, the people he knew and he could vouch for their character, their worth as human beings. They're not trying to take advantage of him in any way. He was afraid of the burden of having to care for anyone outside of that circle. Can you relate to that in any way? And Jesus knows this. He knows that for this guy, it's about fear. And Jesus doesn't want any of us to live out of fear. So in the classic Jesus move, he changes the category. Jesus tells the story, presumably to answer the question, who is my neighbor? And then he changes the question altogether from who is my neighbor to who neighbored? So he asked, which of these three would you say was a neighbor? He changed the question. He negates the question of who deserves my neighborly love and changed the question to who neighbored. It doesn't matter who beat this man up on the side of the road or who he is or what qualified him as a neighbor. What mattered was the action taken. Who neighbored is a question that implies movement, who did something. Jesus is always pushing people from believing to doing. In Luke's gospel, this is a major theme. If you say you love Jesus and believe in God, it needs to move from belief to action. So connect the dots with me. Fear is a powerful motivator in us not taking action. Fear paralyzes us. We know what we should do, but we're afraid, so we don't. But then Jesus the changes the question from who do I have to neighbor to who neighbored. Jesus is saying, overcome your fears. If everyone else is saying the right thing but doing nothing, do something. Jesus wants us to believe the right things. Jesus wants us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And out of that all-in kind of love for God, we overcome our fears and love our neighbor as ourselves. And what we've been proposing to you in this series, The Art of Neighboring, is that if we're going to love our neighbors as ourselves, we do well to start with our actual neighbors, the people who live in closest proximity to us. And what we're seeing in the story of the Good Samaritan is that fear of various kinds can often be what stops us. So I want to move on to discussing one particular type of fear that might be an obstacle in loving your actual neighbor, the people who live around you. And this is the fear of the stranger, what maybe what we call stranger danger. When we talk about fear of the stranger, we're talking about someone we don't know, someone outside our circle. 
And fear of the stranger is enough to stop us from approaching people a lot of times. It's stopped me countless times. If someone is unknown to me, I'm going to have to introduce myself to them, find something to talk about, find some point of connection between us. I'm going to have to try to remember their name, remember if they're married or have kids. It's a lot of work. What if they're not worth it? Maybe you're afraid to meet your neighbors because you're afraid of what they'll think of you. You don't need one more person in your life who judges you or is disappointed in you. Or you might be afraid of what you'll think of them. Maybe you're already kind of judgy towards one of your neighbors based on what you can observe of them from afar. And maybe it's best if you don't know each other. Think back to my story of my neighbor. I didn't know her at all. Not even her name. But a decade earlier, I had a tiny negative interaction with her, and that was enough for me to decide I didn't want to know anything else about her. Of course, as I grew older, I realized that the neighbor wasn't making a statement about my character. She wasn't rejecting me as a human being. She was just asking me to slow the heck down so she didn't get hit by a car when she came out her front door. Totally reasonable, I guess. <laughs> But that perspective shift didn't cause me to walk over to her house and get to know her because by then it had been so many years and I felt like it was too late to start over. Do you feel like it's too late to start over with your neighbors? Maybe you've been watching your neighbor's life from down the street for five or ten years and you're just not sure it's worth the effort to meet that stranger danger. I think Justin told you this story too, but in our old neighborhood, we had like three neighbors that we knew, and instead of introducing ourselves to the ones we didn't know, we just made up nicknames for them. So the neighbor that told me to slow down got named Golf Cart Family, because they were always tooling around on their golf cart. The family across the street was wealthy, and so it didn't make sense that the husband's trucks had truck had super squeaky brakes that squealed and it's like why don't you just get those fixed I know you can afford it so his name was squeaky brakes guy and all that was silly and kind of funny but at the end of the day I was letting the one thing that I could observe about them from afar stand in for everything about them in truth I was dehumanizing them I literally didn't care enough about them to learn their names, so I just made up my own. I labeled them, and then I used that label as my reason for why that was all I ever needed to know about them, and I didn't have to face my fear and meet them. And to that, Jesus would say, who neighbored, Amanda? Who neighbored? Face your fear and love your neighbor. And, and I'm not trying to make you feel guilty if you nickname your neighbors or have silly reasons for maintaining slight annoyances with them. We all do that to one degree or another. But when Justin and I became convicted by the Holy Spirit and started practicing the art of neighboring, I immediately realized there was so much more to my neighbor and to her family than this one negative interaction I'd had or, or the fact that they liked their golf cart a lot. And we, we finally embraced the awkward, walked over to their house with a peace offering of some fall mums and said, like, hey, we've lived here for 12 years and we should have done this years ago, but we're Justin and Amanda Clark and we would love to know your names too. 
And we had a good conversation. They were great. They were like, yeah, we should have introduced ourselves as well. And, and we began a relationship. And it developed some level of depth. We shared plants with each other. And I learned about difficult things that she was going through and got to pray for her. And yes, Jesus came up because I love Jesus. And we talk about what we love. And I don't think I ever made her feel like a project because she wasn't. She was my neighbor. And I had grown to love her. And maybe some of your neighbors would enjoy getting to know you too. But they're respecting your privacy as much as you're respecting theirs. And if you're ever going to break that invisible fence between you, someone is going to have to make the first move. And it might as well be you. Embrace the awkward. Be the person who goes first. Fear of the unknown person, fear of the stranger can keep us from loving our neighbors well. And our discomfort with making introductions, with overcoming what we've observed about them, can be a way that we place them in a category of people I don't need to neighbor. And Jesus is calling us to leave our silly categories behind, push through our fear, and love our neighbor. As we wrap up our Art of Neighboring series, I hope that you will let the work the Holy Spirit has begun in you toward your neighbors move you to action. We can talk about this all we want in theory, but Jesus is asking, who's going to neighbor? Who is going to neighbor? Who is making movement one small step toward the people you live around? As we go from here and you have a thought about how you could connect with a neighbor, move from thought to action. Yes, we're afraid to take the first step with people we don't know. Yes, we're not sure at all that they even want to know us, but it's worth exploring. Jesus is inviting us to live out of love, out of possibility and hope and not fear. Imagine the moments when the kingdom might break through, where heaven might touch earth. If we're the neighbors we want to be and we'd like to be, even like 30% of the time, let's keep going and be proud and happy for every moment where we do neighbor well and, and let go of guilt over the times where we've missed an opportunity. Every week when we end our services, we take a couple of next steps. Next steps are the action steps that we feel that God might be calling us to make as a result of what we've heard and experienced today. So here's how we do that. Every week, I ask you to take out the orange Connect card in the seat back pocket in front of you and grab the pen that's in there, too. And, and every week, you can just flip that over, and on the back side, there's a portion that says, Today, my next step is. And the reason that we ask you to do this is because we feel that when we just take time to be intentional and interact with this and write it down on paper, it can stick in our hearts and heads a little bit differently than just agreeing with me in theory. And so you can, uh, you can write down whatever next step you feel is appropriate, but I'll give you a couple ideas. One, you can schedule that block party. Put down, I'm going to have that block party. Or you can think of that neighbor that you've had that negative interaction with, because I know you have one, and write this prayer. God, help me to make a positive connection with this person this week. 
Or write down the nickname that you gave your neighbor. I know you did that too. Write this prayer. God, help me to learn their nickname's real name this week. I just, I'm so grateful for each of you. In our church family, you're so welcoming. You're so kind, so generous to people you don't know yet. And I'm just asking you to carry that out of this place. Extend it a bit further. Will you pray with me now? Holy Spirit, come. Anytime we make a change, Lord Jesus, it's because your spirit does a work in our hearts. And we invite you to work now in our hearts toward our neighbors. We invite you to increase our capacity to love the stranger. Jesus. You set a table before us in the presence of our enemies, and then you invite us to make them friends. Do this in our hearts. Do this in our lives. Do this in our neighborhoods. Make us instruments of your peace where we live, for your glory and your name. In Jesus' name, amen.